I'm Coulter DeVries with RanchInvestor.com. We give you the tools to build and manage wealth through ranch ownership. I'm Andy Ron, accredited rural appraiser and creator of Montana Land Source, the ultimate resource for the Montana land market. Montana Land Source is the only place where you can find all large acreage listings on the market in Montana today, as well as recent sales. We provide maps, market statistics, and analysis in Montana land news and events. Find us at mtlandsource.com. Hi, I'm Denver Gilbert, licensed broker and owner of Clark & Associates Land Brokers. We've been helping buyers and sellers of farm and ranch properties in six states since 2005. We've been averaging a little over $100 million in ranch real estate sales annually. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today is Tom Hoptman, uh, who is an oil man and a landowner. He's a neighbor of mine uh, in downtown Billings, our office space. We, we have lots of hallway chats about the market. That was part of my interest of bringing him in. Uh, and also, you grew up a block away from my father, I believe. That's correct. That's yeah, correct. so goes back quite a ways. So thanks for joining us, Tom. Uh, why don't we start off with just give us a little bit of your background, if you would. Well, as uh, Andy said, I was born and raised here in Billings. Uh, went to school at the University of Montana. Didn't know what I was going to do with myself except uh, ski and chase girls and whatever so after a couple of years of that sounds non- like college <laughs> that nonsense i finally woke up a, a suggestion to go to uh, uh the university of oklahoma and uh, i always had an interest in the oil business because my father was a geologist so i went down there and uh, spent three years down there got, got a petroleum degree uh and got out of college in 78 so it's my 43rd year in the oil business and i uh, uh was lived in lived in texas and lived in uh, colorado but of course, the lure from Montana, if you're in Montana, you get to get home. So I moved back in 1985. I've been here ever since and uh, hung out my shingle and been uh, drilling wells up and down the Rocky Mountains for the last 40 years. All right. And and you own a couple places outright deeded uh, land purchases, right? Right, right. I've um, About 20 years ago, uh, I was realizing that things were changing in Montana. I talked to a lot of my friends in Texas and saying that how tough it is, to, how expensive land is to get there. And any outdoor opportunities, and I made a pretty good look at that year, so I decided was had been looking for some land uh, as just to get some money off the table for the oil business, and uh, something that was, unlike an oil and gas lease, something that didn't expire, and so I, I was looking for some land, and I looked, and I finally found a property, a uh, farm and ranch operation on the Yellowstone, east of town here, about 50 miles, and also I did the same sort of thing, was looking over in western Montana, my, my uh, uncle, had, uncle had a uh, a large ranch over by the Drummond country. I, that was my summer camp, and so I had a lot of memories from that part of the world. So over the last 25 years, I've also acquired a couple of properties over there for uh, uh, just to add on to the ranch, and, and, uh, and I built a small cabin up there for the family, and it's been a lot of good memories up there. So you got the memo early that they stopped making land and that it was a good investment. That is the truth. I, I knew things would change. I had no concept how much it would change, both in that part of the world and also in eastern Montana. As you know, it's just la-la land anymore. Uh, in in uh, almost both places, I think I'm the only native Montanan on, all around me. It's people from, you name it, uh, Nevada, uh, Arkansas, uh, California, Texas, etc. Not only western Montana, but it, what shocked me is eastern Montana, around the Roundup country and east there down the Muscle Shell and all that Pine Ridge country around there. It's, uh, it, it, it's just incredible the amount of, of land that's traded hands for the last 20 years. Yeah, yeah, it truly has international appeal. Yeah, it's it's been uh, uh, amazing, and I think it's also ramped up uh, with with uh, what's been going on, defund the police, and all that kind of crazy stuff too. And Montana being a pretty stable state, stable taxation, uh, we don't have a whole lot of rights in this in this state, and and so I think because of that, the 
uh, you know, it's more, you know, it is a red state, and it seems like people like to move uh, away from some big blue states to red states, and and uh, and also just because it's a, as we all know, we're from here. It's a spectacular place to, to raise a family and 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 to live. Yeah, it's it's viewed as a safe investment all around, financially, quality of life. Uh, there's a lot of security in why people are buying ranches and why we have international appeal. And I think Montana, we have a population of a million. It'll continue to climb rapidly. Uh, we're not growing as quick as Austin and Boulder and even Boise, but we are growing rapidly. And Unless you're Galton County. It, well, Unless you're Bozeman. Bozeman, yeah. <laughs> um, but it will continue. Uh, people just really like the quality of life out here. And I think that goes for Wyoming, too. You're going to still see that in Wyoming, definitely seeing it in Idaho. Um, but for all the reasons you enjoy a ranch is why people in Newark, New Jersey would enjoy a ranch as well. Or across the river from, from my place uh, on the east of Billings here, the guy from Norway bought a place there uh, just because he wanted to be able to park some money in a safe part of the world. Absolutely. And uh, Andy, I'm not sure we might need to do a trigger warning for this episode because <laughs> we have an oil and gas guy, and <laughs> yeah. uh, we've done some we've done some episodes with holistic management and regenerative agriculture, and a lot of time that aligns with uh, more alternative forms of energy, and uh, we might offend some listeners by by having some insights on oil and gas, but the truth is. That's a big piece of property rights, and it's a big piece of why you buy land, why you invest. Um, it is a it is a venture to pursue. It's a reason to own land in the West, in particular, if the rights are still there. But uh, oil and gas has been a big piece of Montana history, of the economy, Wyoming, and uh, it will continue to be a big piece of our economy. So it's important we have this podcast today. Love it or hate it, it uh, wind and solar are not going to replace oil and gas. No, not not in my lifetime, not in your lifetime, or or your kids' lifetimes, uh, or their kids' lifetime. It's uh, hydrocarbons are the way to go. We're ninety-seven, ninety-eight percent of the production or the power generation in this country is all done by uh, by uh, fossil fuels, and it just uh, it, it's dependable. That's the main thing we've learned about in Texas. What's going on is that windmills can't get you there all the time. Sometimes the wind doesn't blow, and, and of course we know half the day the sun doesn't shine, so you have to have a, a base load. And uh, so because of that reliability, people don't appreciate ele uh, continuous electricity until they don't have it. Now, and, and when someone buys a ranch out west and they ask, well, what are the mineral rights there? And I have to say, not my area. You need to hire a landman. Can you tell me what a landman does and why they would want to hire a landman? Right. It'd be the, the mineral rights and the surface rights are, are separate estates. And actually, the dominant estate is the, are the mineral rights. Uh, they are the, if you don't own the mineral rights, the, the people who have them do have a, a, a right to go on the property and uh, to, to explore, to, to exploit their mineral rights or, or someone who leases their land, if a landman leases their land. And so... It is important to know to know that, uh, and uh, th they have to compensate you for the any damage they do to crops or land or that sort of thing, and the, and they always want to work that out because it always makes good sense to get along with the surface owner. You know, life short, and, and so most people I uh, I do, and I've always done it my forty plus years, and people that uh, I've worked with, they you know bend over backwards to make sure the landowner is happy with their with their activity as much as can be provided. The only way to really find out that the most real estate agents don't know how to check records to go to the courthouse, uh, you have to start with the patent from the very beginning and see who owns the mineral rights at the, at the time. Is it owned by the federal government or is it owned by, did the government uh, uh, give the mineral rights to the person who initially patented it? And then you just have to, it's called a chain of title and you just go through 
every single uh, document from that period forward and seeing if the mineral rights were split off and they can be split from, you know, for one person can have it. In most cases, they don't. It can be split from hell to breakfast because it doesn't take very many generations where you have a farm family with seven kids and those kids have seven kids and those kids have five kids and suddenly you got a, a pretty good mess out there if the people start reserving some of the mineral rights. And, uh, and oftentimes in the... In the 20s and 30s, people were uh, d desperate for cash, so they would sell part of their mineral rights. And you can do that. You can sell half your minerals or all your minerals if you, if you want. And then, of course, those minerals oftentimes get sold down the road and get split up also. So you have to really have to hire a landman. Most of the guys, you can get it done for oh, four to $500 a day. Depending how, how split the minerals are, it could take anywhere from just a, a few hours to, to a week to find out what is, is owned. And, uh, but I think it's important somebody could pick the investments, particularly now when, if you're in an oily type province area and, and particularly now with the prices people are paying, it, it, it behooves you to, uh, to find out. I guarantee on the land I did, I, I, I had it checked out before I bought it. You, yeah, it gets pretty expensive when you're researching if someone owns 184th of the mineral rights there. <laughs> right, right. And, uh, would, would a landman then insure those minerals if I went to, if I had a claim that I owned 100% of my minerals and I went to market those separate from the surface, that I just wanted to sell my minerals for cash flow, pay for my cows, that <laughs> habit. Um, subsidize your, yeah. ag your agricultural Sub habit. Yeah, subsidize my farming losses. Uh, who can verify? Who can? Is there title insurance for minerals? Well, I think there probably there, or there is, but what you'd at that stage, the next step would be if you really want to have it where it's a marketable asset would then be to have the, the landman uh, deliver the chain of title or just get an abstract from the county, uh, the local abstract company on, on the land and then get it to an oil and gas attorney and they will uh, you know, guarantee their, warrant their title. And that way you, you don't have to do a quit claim deed, you can actually do a mineral warranty deed where you warrant the mineral rights uh, to, if you want to sell some. And so that'd be the way, way you'd, want, you'd have to do that. And in Billings, Denver, Casper, there's lots of oil and gas attorneys that that's what they do for a living. And one thing buyers should be aware of buying out here is just because you have the mineral rights doesn't mean they're worth anything. Yeah, in most cases, they're not worth anything. I, I get calls all the time from people saying, hey, I inherited this from my, how do I value it? And I look at the, where it's located, and I can say, well, I can defend it. I'll write your letter right now. It's, it's probably worth $100. I mean, because 99.5% of, of the Montana doesn't have oil and gas production on it. And there's a reason for that. And so uh, if you're standing on top of a mountain, it, it, there's just no way you're, they're going to be any oil and gas rights or any value. There might be some mineral rights as far as the... Uh, you know, hard, hard rock and that sort of thing. But yeah, you buy a property, it, it's, unless you're, over. Oh, I see in the, in the kind of the known oil and gas provinces, you better buy it just for what you can, you think you, you can make on money on top of the ground. So Tom, early in my appraisal career, which I think kind of aligns with when the out of state, even out of country buyer set really started to set in in Montana. And it was my perception at the time, a lot of times these buyers would come in and they would be pretty surprised about the split estate situation, and especially if there was a property they were interested in and all the minerals weren't available, that that gave a lot of heartache. And um, it seems like at some point that might have actually kind of held the market back a little bit in terms of, you know, just people not wanting to deal with that kind of split estate. But there seemed to be some point where acceptance set in and it just, it's what you got to deal with. And I still get calls on this, you know, and I'm not a mineral uh, rights expert or valuation expert. But kind of the same thing you're talking about. The, the reality is 90 plus, maybe 95% plus of the time, of course, depending on the area, you know, the likelihood of your uh, mineral rights being exploited. You can, you know, those of us that are local and know regions can kind of tell 
you know, the likelihood of that being uh, developed is very, very low. Um, right. Yeah, that's correct. And I think you could, uh, for very little effort, find uh, someone who knows the area in the oil and gas business and just get a, you know, you get what you pay for, but just say, hey, I've got this property here. Uh, there's people in our in our building, Andy, that uh, do that mm-hmm. for, they'll say, look at it quickly and spend a half day look at it or, or just or cursory look over maybe an hour and say, hey, this is a, I, I wouldn't worry about it. I don't think it's that uncommon. I don't know if this is in contrast to other states, but buyers coming in from out of state and, and having some heartache uh, with these, not just mineral states, but even things like water rights and stuff and realizing it's not necessarily really nailed down. Uh, all that's involved access is, a, is another issue. You know, there might be some old historic access issue going on with a neighboring ranch and the best anyone can tell them is this might be an issue, this might not. And if you want to spend a bunch of money, you can you can flush it out. But at least with access issues, actually sometimes even there, it's like, well, you might be kicking a bear that you don't want to kick. Uh, so do you have any perspective on that? Back to, I guess, oil and gas and split estate uh, effect on the market in terms of, you know, buyers of the surface, you know, not always having as much certainty maybe as they would like. Yeah, I, I think it probably would be overblown. But, you know, bottom line is if you go anywhere east of, you know, any. If you're west of Billings, if you draw do a, a, a vertical line for, through Billings, you head west of there, unless you're up there by Cutbank and those old existing well fields, you know, your risk of getting react, your activity potential of seeing the oil and gas activity is, is de minimis. I think I wouldn't worry about it at all. Yeah, I think that's what typically happens. That's the conversation I've had to have a lot of in 2020 with uh, new buyers, uh, national and inter- interstate buyers, yeah. is that they... They, they write the offer and they want me to write the offer to include all in any minerals that the seller currently has. Uh, or, or they want the minerals with the property. And I'm saying, well, these are probably severed a long time ago, generations ago. And so if the seller has any, I will write this offer. But it doesn't matter because you're in an area where the development potential is next to zero. And then they say, well, what the hell? Someone else owns the minerals and they can just bring rigs on top of my place. Don't even yeah. have to give me a heads up and pretty soon they're going to be drill, drill baby drill all over <laughs> here. And I say, no, it's, you're in an area with zero potential. And there, it's just a constant education battle that this new interstate buyer hates the idea of someone having the dominant estate on them. Right, right. Well, if you, if you, of course, if you have some of the mineral rights, uh, my uncle used to always say at his ranch in western Montana, it never happened. But he, he said the, the uh, uh, having well well on the ranch when he owned the minerals would be a, the, he said the best mineral supplement there is. You know, after, <laughs> and, what's uh, the best thing that crosses with Angus? Oil wells. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Growing up, uh, the joke used to be that so and so ranch had a great crossbreeding program going on oil and cattle and you know oil and cattle was a was a kind of good mix uh financially i mean you sort of said this early on that land investment for you was kind of a you didn't not a hedge but a balance to your oil business yeah pretty much so that you know when you're doing this business and, and i got the stage where i was you know I, I i came from a big catholic family seven kids and no money but it was great upbringing but uh but as i worked my way through the industry i started keeping keep, keeping portions and larger portions of my own uh, pr- projects, you know, win, lose, or draw. You, I mean, you get knocked off your horse a lot in the oil business and drill dry holes. And uh, and so I thought this tremendous amount of risk I was taking and the kind of money I was talking about, I said, you know, it, 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 you can kind of give yourself some discipline when the day's all over. Do, do you have any, any, any see, so you want something else besides just your steely. You know, you want to have the, mm-hmm. some chips left over, and, and that's a good way to self-discipline is to spread your, just spread your 
asset base out besides oil and gas properties, but like any commodity, then spread your risk with commodities. And, and, uh, and so you know, land was a natural extension because I deal with land, have dealt with on the oil and gas side forever. So transactions of that didn't scare me. And, it, uh, and, uh, and I said, I, I just felt this was going to happen in Montana. It's gone off in steroids here, as you know, in the last year or two. Uh, but I, I knew it would come creeping along. Now it's just gone sort of exploded. That's good portfolio management. The uh, the beta and the standard deviation, the volatility of land is very low to offset that wildcatting you're doing. Right. <laughs> very risky. Well, wasn't again when I was a kid, I felt like you heard all the time, and maybe maybe some of the early outside investment. You hear about oil, Texas oil, and that you know that a Montana ranch, and that I think the cattle especially was a great, you know, they had they had they needed depreciation. And so buying a ranch and having a bunch of cattle, um, that's where the crossbreed between oil and, and ranching kind of came in. Is that right. how things were kind of in the 70s and 80s? Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, if you can, you know, as you, can, as you know, in farm and ranch operation, you can make you know, a couple, 3%, you're, it's a runaway year for you. But <laughs> but the appreciation value, uh, even though I don't, it's like selling your wife's wedding ring, you probably, I'm not going to do it. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I just gone up in value, but I can't see honey give me the ring back. I, I, I got to put it in a well. Uh <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, I just think it's, it's a nice way to just kind of even things out. And, and as I've gotten older, my risk tolerance and, you know, hanging my tail out and you know, everything I got rolling, pushing it all back in the middle of the table is kind of that interest has waned. And so I, it's also, you know, learning, it's just, a, as you know, ranching is, it, and mine's an operating farm and ranch operation that it's just a business. You got to learn the business and, and it's a, a challenge and, and it's, uh, it's a it's a good outlet, uh, you know, for, to get away from when I'm getting big time pressure in the office in the, in the oil fields. So if you were starting over today, or if there was a young man today uh, starting out like you did, would would land be uh, seen as a reasonable, you know, which is more volatile uh, right now, land or oil? I mean, I guess I guess oil is still more volatile, but land seems to be catching up, at least in terms of, like you said, runaway. Yeah, it seems it seems like I think land is you're just not going to go wrong with it. Uh, I think if you can buy it. You know, I used to think when I'll never forget when I bought the first property over in Western Montana, and I think I paid this outrageous sum in the mountains of like four hundred fifty dollars an acre, and people said, "You're out of your friggin' mind! Yeah, what are you doing that for?" Well, I don't have to tell you what the, the thousands of dollars per acre that's just going for now, and uh, and I just thought, you know, beautiful is beautiful, and uh, and so once again, I've got neighbors from Mississippi and New, uh, New Jersey and all kinds of stuff that's. Uh, uh, I don't ever look back. That's for darn sure. I did an appraisal for a large family in the Gallatin Valley uh, that had land, and they called the triangle between Bozeman, Belgrade, and Four Corners. And uh, the farmer, the father, had bought that land in the '30s in the in the Depression for $100 an acre, and people thought he was just nuts. And that estate appraisal came in around 30,000 an acre for that that same ground. Wow. <laughs> and I don't think a correction, but it seems like we might have a correction, but. It's, it, it seems to dip, but it never dropped down back where it was five, six years ago. It's, all you're doing is basically slowing the, the rate of increase, it seems like. Well, you're exactly right, and Coulter and I have talked about this. My data, Montana Land Source data, shows that at, at worst, you got about seven years, meaning that you know you buy at the worst point at any point in the last couple cycles. You're going to be, you know, the the worst you're going to do is have seven years of recovery. Uh, also known as how I buy cows <laughs> at the very top of the market. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but that's and it's it's similar. They say that about the the stock market, right? There's never been a ten year period that the stock market didn't make money. So it's a it's a hold it's a hold thing. As long as you can hold for a while, you're well, going to be. Well, and also we've got this. Uh, I mean, it's it's, it's bipartisan spending. Our, our debt's approaching thirty trillion dollars. 
we just passed, we're passing a $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. They're talking about infrastructure spending, another couple trillion. And I mean, the money, the printing press is going crazy in Washington right now. And there's no accident. Bill Gates is now the largest farm owner in the United States on a quarter million acres of farmland. He can see inflation coming too. And it's, it's, ha it's not going to happen. It's happening. And uh, so is he hedging against his next uh, operating system release? Is that, <laughs> <laughs> is the inflation going to, it shows through in oil, right? Oh, no question about that. We're and gonna, of course, we're going to see a hundred dollar barrel pretty soon. Well, we're seeing it in for, for, for a number of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons of course, is the current administration and it's just the people elected the, the, this administration, they are very anti-fossil fuels. And so they are, at least in the West here, they've done their level best. And they've done a real good job of shutting things down here in the in the, in the Rockies. I've never seen, uh, like in my years of experience, never seen it. Uh, uh, we always used to have in the well business uh, three risks. When you're drilling a well, you'd have to have other risk of hydrocarbons in the ground there. Is there a trap and is there a reservoir? Well, now you have a fourth risk, which is as big or greater than all those, is governmental risk. And you've got a... Uh, in, in uh, you know, that they've stopped the Keystone Pipeline. I doubt that's going to be revived again. This Dakota Access Pipeline in, in North Dakota, they, uh, the administration, well, they're, they're, a federal judge had ruled, uh, said they should shut it down and do an environmental impact sta statement on global warming and climate change. And so they appealed that. They lost the appellate court. Uh, the the, the uh, DAPL lost to them. So it came, it's going to come back to, the, or it has come back to the district court judge who ruled against the pipeline company for his final determination. Well, he's not going to override himself. And if they shut that that, that pipeline in, uh, that's half the production takeaway capacity in North Dakota and Montana. So you're going to see a tremendous deduction. Probably the, the price the producer gets is probably 20 to $30 a barrel off of what the price uh, you see in the newspaper. So, you know, it'd probably make most of North Dakota un uneconomic. So you take that, you take the lands and for instance, in Wyoming, where it's a checkerboard pattern, the Uncle Sam owns a lot of mineral rights there, and they've shut down any activity on federal land right now. Uh, won't approve any permits, won't approve any rights of way or anything. And so even if you have private land, let's say out of Gillette or that country there, someone drills on the private land, but in, invariably you've got to get a, a road right away to get across federal land to, to market your oil or build a pipeline. And right now there's a moratorium on any of that stuff. So it's, we're going to see that this impact is going to affect, it already has affected. Oil's gone from the mid-30s in November, today it was $64 a barrel in just since November. And U.S. production uh, is dropping because that we are don't have as many rigs in the air as we as we had, and and uh, the government's making it more and more difficult. And it's a very inelastic supply demand situation throughout the world. If you if you're a million barrels too much, the price is going to drop down to you know, so you can uh, the, so demand will increase so that people use it. But right now, the world is using about two and a half million barrels a day more than what the world's producing. So we're taking it out of storage. Well, eventually that's going to storage is get depleted. And so because of that, it's a, it's a classic supply and demand situation. And so I, yeah, I'm predicting, I mean, you can, this is a dime, we'll get you a cup of coffee. But I, I think we're going to be seeing oil, we're at 60, 60-ish now, and I think we're probably in the 70, 75 range by the end of the year. So how does that affect the farmer rancher? Well, yeah, your diesel costs are going to go up. I'm, I, all my friends, I'm advising fill up your tanks now because it's going to get more expensive. Oh, they always go up during harvest anyways. Yeah. <laughs> they, they price that for all those combines out in the field. So it sounds like land being you know a, a safe haven uh risk averse low risk and then generally your owner operator uh farmer rancher is a risk averse person because they're dealing with so much climactic risk biological risk um market, market risk. risk uh the risks are unlimited with farm and ranch and they're so different now you talk about bringing in a whole new set of political risks 
Do you see many landowners participating in wells? Because when I was a banker during the Bakken boom, I was in Watford, Williston, and Sydney. I had two clients. They were pretty well capitalized. Uh, you know, their, their place they probably bought for $50 back in 1940. And, uh, but they participated on those wells, and they made excellent money. I just see that being way too much risk for your average farmer and rancher. Yeah, that that would be extremely rare. I've never in my years I've never run across that. Now, if they're in a in a hot area, what they can do is their terms of the their leasing it can change a lot. The dollars paid per acre, the royalty rate, how much they get off the top free, and that can change. The standard rate is all used to always be twelve and a half percent, but you know you I've seen rates in in Montana as you know, high as twenty percent royalty off the top, and that's pretty tough to give up. If you can have participate in one out of every five barrels of yours uh, for free, that I'd, I'd I'd strongly recommend just lease the land and let the operator take the risk on it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And so so that's going to be the most natural way to go. So if I'm a landowner, a ranch investor in Richland County or Baker County or uh, what is it, Montrose County there in Western North Dakota, mm-hmm. Montreal, Montrose. So that well, actually the first but, question no. is, is well, is Will um, Williams County there in McKenzie County? That's the McKenzie, that, yeah. Mm-hmm. So. If I'm going to sell my place and say my great grandfather homesteaded this, we have all the minerals. How and we know that there's active production going on. Is that like a discounted cash flow? How do you value the minerals uh, and and the income you're receiving from those wells? Well, of course, you know you, you can you have two choices. You can sell your place and reserve all your mineral rights and keep them with you. They travel with you. Uh, but I want the money today. If you want the money? Oh yeah, you can just. It's a. Uh, there are a lot of. Uh, uh, if you have the, that royalty share, there are a lot of uh, uh, clearing houses now that can will market it. It's a very sophisticated part of the business now. People buying and selling mineral rights, producing and non-producing mineral rights in in, in areas that are active. And so, uh, and and like anything else, with the interest rates uh, as low as they are now, if somebody can buy your mineral rights out and has possibly some upside drilling down the, down the road. I've seen minerals, you know, people doing it with you know, present value discounted, like down to only 5%. And, you know, the life of the production, only discounted 5%. People want to buy like the mineral rights because that still beats what you get in the bank right now. You know, what 20 basis points you get in the bank right now. And so people are looking at that as, as an asset. And as a royalty share, you've got no liability as far as cleaning up or any that sort of thing either. You're, it's, it's risk-free ownership. Well, mm-hmm. that's a pretty good discount rate. I mean, really good, 5%, because 25 years ago, that was probably a 15% discount rate. Right, right. They they viewed it as more, well, and rates are generally lower today, but I would say with fracking, uh, they probably deem it as lower risk, that those reservoirs that are there, the formation of the Bakken and what is it, the three forks that's under the Bakken, but they know we could probably get to that someday. We have the technology. Yeah, what it is is you've got sort of like all these shale plays. You have a core area, which you always, you know, everybody hear, hears about the best deal, the best well. But the, the truth is a lot of them are not runaway wells. And there are areas that are, you know, tier two and tier three that are not as good as areas. However, when prices go up, that makes some of these areas a second tier um, economic and people start stretch out and do it. So, I mean... What's economic at uh, you know hundred dollars a barrel that was not economic at fifty? Well, if it makes money, uh, people will drill it then eventually. How can landowners, uh, agents, brokers do a better job of researching their these? There's the Montana Board and, uh, Board of Oil and Gas has a website to research wells. Um, who else can they research or reach out to that would 
kind of be an agent to advocate for them and, and educate them on what they have? Well, there's a Montana Royalty Owners Association, and I think you guys can check into that organization because they're looking out for the landowner. So they're looking from that standpoint. Uh, mm -hmm. I will say the Board of Oil and Gas, which is here in Billings, they do an ouch, they're very helpful. Uh, I've been out there before stumbling around asking people to say, what, uh, do I have any potential in my land? And, and just ask some people there, and they're more than happy to help up, you know, look and see if any wells were drilled on it, what they found at the time the wells were drilled on them. I just did that recently for a neighbor, want to know what this well was drilled on. You know, most of the landowners say, well, it, it made an oil well, but they capped it. I said, no, 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 no. Then no company drills a well, finds oil, and walks away from it. That, that, <laughs> that's a standard story because they want to have you drill some wells on them. But uh, uh, they were actually checking that and also checking up because of some of the uh, electric logging tools that were run. They could check in also with the potential for some fresh water and that sort of thing also. And so... This oil and, I start with oil and gas commission doesn't cost you a nickel, and they're more willing to help. Yeah, and they, they have a great website where you can do your own buyer due diligence, which is highly encouraged. Get on there and see what's in the area. I mean, it might not be the ranch you're looking at, but there might be an old well from 1945 that, that they have permitted there. It's, it's on the interactive map. So buyer due diligence, they need to reach out to more experts and use these tools. Coulter, right. Coulter, I'm curious. Do you ever get calls from potential buyers that are actually looking for land that has active mineral um, activity going? Are, are there ever buyers for that? No, not yeah. no, not a not a surface play that has minerals with it. No, it, those seem to be two different type of buyers. Right, that's your, what. Your wildcatter, like our guy in the <laughs> office here, and then uh, you, like we were talking about in other episodes, your recreationalist with a little bit of subsidized farm and ranch income. Right, right. Yeah, it seems like I've talked to a few landowners. Generally, those interests seem to be at odds, especially with this recreational aesthetic factors that have taken into the market. Most of our buyer set, you know, don't want, aren't looking forward to an oil rig on their place, let's say. But then again, you know, there's guys that are interested in maximizing investment and multiple streams of income and, you know, that kind of stuff. So, Well, you know, it's amazing that the, the, these people that... Um these kids that grew up in Montana, they grew up in a farm and ranch operation. They don't think much of it. They think the whole world's that way. And I've traveled enough, and I can tell you, most of the world is not like Montana. And <laughs> we are, a, you know, a unique state. The climate is is pretty darn nice, and uh, and it it is a uh, you know I, I, it's coined the phrase, but it's sort of the last best place. I think it. Colorado's wonderful, but they've kind of loved it to death. There's darn many people over there and down right, there, and, right. and Montana we're still able to you know, hover around that million dollar mark for the whole state. So. You do have room to stretch out here, and I think it, it's uh, the world's going to get smaller. I, I just don't see, like we talked about, I don't think you're going to see a, a real a deep pullback uh, in the land prices because it's a it's a finite resource, and and uh, you know there aren't many places like this where you can have the kind of stability, security, and the recreational opportunities we have in the, in the state. It, it's uh, all all combined. It it, uh, it makes for pretty solid investment. So growing up, I spent a lot of time on the road between Billings and Lewistown, and there was always oil wells in, individual wells on that route and today there's almost none what's what's yeah well, mo there? well most of those wells were, were drilled uh there most of those wells were around grass range in that part of the world they were yeah. they were uh, uh drilled back in the 50s uh there was a kind of a mini boom back then and they first had production around the roundup area north and east of roundup by Melstone, that part of the world and and they uh, it was very active, and uh, they were actually Roundup was a big oil town if you can believe it at the time. Mm -hmm. And they were finding some significant oil and gas production, primarily out of called the Tyler Sand, which is the shop talk. It's the Pennsylvanian, about three hundred fifty million years old. And um, what they basically were were, were old riverbed channels, and they were chasing those. But they were finding very very prolific wells. 
And uh, so there was quite a, quite a bit of activity. However, those wells now are, if they're still around, and there are still some around, but now, you know, 50, 60, 70 years old. And so, uh, unfortunately, oil wells, the, the best day of production of a new oil well is its first day, because then you then decline starts happening the day after that. Hmm. How about the Bighorn Basin? So I have quite a few listings and have done a lot of business in the Powell area. And uh, around Franny, Cali, Deaver, you see a lot of defunct pump jacks anymore. What's going on with that formation? Well, that was primarily the, the, the two formations down there is the Phosphoria and the Ten Sleep. And uh, these were old, old fields, uh, sheep herder anticlines. You could actually see the structures. Uh, the, this is not like a shale play. These are sandstone plays where you actually have a trap where oil, you know, just like on your driveway, oil floats on top of water. Well, on, under the earth, it's the same thing. It floats on top of water. So if you can find a, a big sand reservoir where it has drapes over at that depth, or some sort of structure, then that oil will migrate to that t the top of that structure, and that is the why it rings around. If you look at Bighorn Basin, the production it's it's a big rim around the basin there, and that because that's where these structures came out, and so this that production, some of that stuff is. Uh, I mean, they were drilling those with cable tool wells back in the eight, late eighteen hundreds, so it's it's very old production. I've I'm very familiar with Bighorn Basin because I've I've broken my pick there about six or seven times trying to figure <laughs> there's there's got to be more oil out here and there's got to uh, be more here and I yeah it was heartbreak ridge I'll tell you the, I've had to call my investors I took and I said well here we go again another dry hole <laughs> so because of that there there aren't any uh, there it's not, there's no shale play like that for per se like there is in the Bakken in North Dakota and Eastern Montana and so it, it's pretty well defined where the production is like that and there and people have tried throughout the years to find some more production out there, but there, uh, there hasn't been anything of significance found, really anything of any significance found in probably uh, at least 30 years out there. It's just people have tried, but it's, uh, the oil is where, uh, what, uh, is where it is, and, and it's not where it's not, and, and uh, we haven't figured out a, not to say we might find a better mousetrap in 20 years and figure a better scientific tool, but right now it, it's not out there. So it's funny, not funny, but uh, remind me when the oil got extremely low here within the last year or two. When was that low point? Well, we were in uh, May of last uh, year when when the the traders were uh, when you do a, if you're doing buying oil on the New York Mercantile Exchange um, at some point the last guy standing has to take physical delivery of it. And, right, right. And well, suddenly COVID came and things shut down and they qu airplanes quit flying and the demand dropped about well, 30 million barrels a day throughout the world overnight. And these traders were stuck with it and they had no place to put it. And so it went, it, it went to minus $37 a barrel. So I, that news was, was permeating. I was hearing this news and, and, uh, I got thinking about it, and you know, I'm in the 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 hand. We're together in the Hancock Fortin building, right? Isn't that what they called it? Right. When it was built, and it was built for oil, for, right. for oil execs, and it was the petroleum. It was called the petroleum building, forever. right? The petroleum building, and may, what would you say? Maybe a third or a quarter of the tenants are still still oil related. Maybe that's. I'd say lean more toward the quarter. I think. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I'm I'm heading into the office, and I all of a sudden started thinking about my neighbors in the oil business, and thought, oh, shoot, these guys might be really hurting. Jumping out the window. Yeah, right, <laughs> jumping out the window, and I run, I run into Tom in the hallway, and I say, Tom, how's this, how's this oil market treating you? And Tom just big grin ear to ear and says, I've been in the oil business 40 years. Well, I've learned, I have, you know, people kept telling me all the time during the boom days, well, money's so cheap, you got to leverage yourself, you're too conservative, and that sort of thing, and, and uh I'm old enough. I remember the crash of '86 when oil, oil dropped to like seven dollars a barrel, and at that time I was was not very you know, at all. I had a, a, a big mortgage, and I think I was making six hundred bucks a month, and 
And uh, you know, my wife wanted to redo the kitchen and all that. I said, I said "Honey, we can't, we, we can't hard you know, do anything." And you couldn't, uh, you couldn't get the ring off. I had no money to change my mind. Uh, and <laughs> so, anyway, because of that, I, that's the old story of uh, the bumper sticker. Now, dear Lord, give me one more oil boom. I promise not to to blow it away this time. And uh, <laughs> and I took that to heart, so I've stayed debt free. And and I, because it's the nature of our business, any just like any commodity, but particularly oil and gas, you get these booms and busts. And uh, you, you just got to expect them. And I've seen so many of them now uh, that my goal was always be, you know, money in the bank and debt-free, and, and uh, it's just a nice place to be. And uh, my only right now, that heart goes out, these, these young people, the, the layoffs that have occurred in the last two years are in the tens of thousands. And these are a lot of very skilled engineers and geologists and landmen. And, mm-hmm. they're, they're, and now the worm's turning again, the price going up again at... But the problem is, a lot of these people they'll go off and get involved and you know be stockbrokers or realtors or whatever, and they say, "I don't think I'm going to go back to opens now." It's just you know, mother likes to check every two weeks uh, with the kids, and it, that's just not this. It's it's a this game is it's tough, and so uh, uh, I think it, it's it's but you know this would be expected. And are, are we in the right now the possibly another boom coming? It could be. I think with the What's going on now? And, and we're we we're the Saudis are going to be calling the shots. And if they don't want to produce enough oil, they they got a kind of a sweet spot right now. They realize the U.S. is kind of back on our heels. The domestic industry is, and and uh, they're and we're going to be. And, you know, we, we can't cut off supply when the demand remains the same, and we're still flying jets and uh, using aircraft carriers, and uh, you know everybody's driving, and and I, and so I think in, in the economy with this COVID winding down, you're going to see more demand. People want to get out and do things and travel and whatever. So I think we're going to. We might be in the hills with another kind of a mini boom starting again. Well, we're, as the Ranch Investor Podcast, we normally deal in surface rights and ranches, farms that have the potential to benefit from solar and, uh, and wind, and especially because that may, might be more democratized, that it doesn't take a large energy company such as Halliburton to make use of the energy potential you have on your, your farmer ranch kind of a democratization of energy, but energy is a commodity. So supply will always meet demand. Do you think with the new administration that landowners uh, should be very skeptical and cautious about this uh, boom of solar and wind that there's probably a bust to follow it? Well, I th- it, you're going to find out that it's, it's, it's so incredibly expensive that it, the only reason wind is even, or solar, or even on the radar screen, is because they're being so heavily subsidized by the government. And that eventually those subsidies can't, you know, if the government's subsidizing that, they can't pay for schools or, or roads or whatever. And so if they go full bore, you know, and the last thing I want in my farm ranch operation or, uh, or Western Montana is a bunch of windmills to look at every day. Uh, but I think that they're, they're uh, you know, they're right now, that's their only answer right now is wind and solar. And, I, and that's their, what they're talking about. So I think our, you're going to see some folks where they're going to be offering the, the, the uh, that are you know they're going to dangle enough money out in front of them that they might do that, but it's it's not it just what did you say it's just not going to make a difference as far as our our energy uh, uh, supply because it just can't it just can't it cannot be a base load. I've already heard from landowners that uh, this the new administration uh, and with this ensuing solar and wind boom that your uh, your fly by night salesmen are approaching landowners and trying to reserve their wind and solar rights and they're. They're trying to buy that estate from the landowner, and uh, I would I would caution people be very careful because there's going to be a lot more of them. People knocking on doors saying, "Boy, this place looks great for a solar field." 
I don't know if I've ever seen more enthusiasm from a farmer and rancher than the prospect of passive income from a windmill. <laughs> that just seems to really light people up. Absolutely. And I think we've talked about this in this podcast. I know Hertha Lund has done work on this attorney, and she gave a presentation to a group of appraisers a couple of years ago about a lot. So these wind companies will come in and they will buy up leases, uh, but actually with the intention of never putting a windmill on a place, uh, but cornering, uh, you know, building a buffer around a place they actually want to develop. And that landowners have to be real careful and that some of them have, have, have signed contracts where they uh, are led to believe they might get income from a windmill from a company that never intends to put one up. There's been some that going on already. Well, it makes you wonder, the, uh, my uh, farm and ranch operation needs to billings. I've got those twin 500 kV lines that came from come from coal strip, you know. You've seen what they're by Broadview, and I, but those are the same ones. So I get flyers all the time from wind people because the, the question is going to remain that those are multi, that's a multi-million dollar uh, line they've got there, and it ends up over and goes over to the Seattle-Tacoma area in Oregon. And, and uh, they shut down, we've already shut down coal strips one and two, and then you got three and four. If they're talking about shutting it down the next five, ten years, well, then what happened to that power line? You, you think it's tough to get a permit to, uh, to drill an oil well? Try and get a permit to run big power lines like that, you know. And so, yeah, yeah. The, I think you're seeing a lot of wind guys chasing that that power line, trying to figure out where they can just by putting up a uh, wind farm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's where that's where my reference comes from. Is that same power line, Tom? It's uh, the calls I get are. Uh, there's been people knocking on the doors and making calls saying, this is the future, uh, get in it now while prices are still good. And I would just be very cautious about that. Yeah, you, got, you have to think about the long term. What, what The bottom line is, how is that going to affect the value of your property too? I mean, do you really want to have it where you got those wishing windmills right right next to your house and, and the people, you know, your your view shed? I, I, I don't find the, you know, the bird shopper that attractive, in my opinion, so I'm, I don't have any interest. In, uh, they'd have to throw a lot of money at me for me to want to put them on my place, I'll tell you. Well, I've, I've gotten a number of calls as an appraiser uh, about impact on land values, positive and negative, you know, whether it's a detriment, you know, to have windmills in your viewscape, or, you know, is there some kind of enhanced value when you have a, you know, wind farm? And it's tough, you know, the market has to be established, essentially, before an appraiser can weigh in, and we just, you know, we just don't have those transactions. So it's kind of the Wild West as far as that goes. Well, what people, you know, they, they understand, they, they think this is like helping the earth and that sort of thing. And I think, you know, do you have any concept of what it takes to make a windmill, one windmill? You're, you're talking, you know, tens of yards of concrete. You're talking, which has to, that, that's got to be mined from someplace. You've got to have the steel for these gigantic things, the fiberglass, which is petroleum products for the wind blades, which only last about 20 years, the lubrication uh, and they talk about storage, and I said, well, you, you talk about uh, tearing up the countryside oil and gas wells. Go to a lithium mine sometime. Take a look at that. You talk about a big open pit operation. It, and it's, and the fact that, you know, what, 80% of the windmills made in the, in the, used in the United States are made in China, and what do they, what do they make to have to have power to do it? Well, from coal over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so you're not going to get away from it. You can kid yourself and thinking you're doing something, but you're not really it. The most efficient way, that's the beauty of oil and gas, is that you, you go from from whatever you're using, and it's a direct one-to-one correlation as far as the energy generated, boom, turns the, turns the, the, turns the turbines and you got electricity. You don't have to have this, this situation where you have wind, then you have to have batteries to store it for the winter, and then you also you have the line loss because if the wind blows and you might be, you know, they're, they're talking a gigantic uh, uh, wind farm down in southwest Wyoming, and uh, they're going to, to provide green energy for California. They figured some of the line loss, just the power of electricity from there to California, you could probably have over 50% line loss. Hmm. So it's just not very efficient. 
highly inefficient. And that's the thing. If you want to save the world, produce it most efficiently, store it most efficiently, transport it most efficiently, then use it most efficiently. And that's, that is not solar and wind. Well, I'm a conservationist. I'm not an environmentalist, but I'm a conservationist. And, and uh, uh, you, you want to save the world, start with yourself. Don't drive to the local grocery store. Walk to it. You know, that, you can do that. It's a personal virtue. You know what kind of drives me crazy? They're going to do a big solar farm north of town, right? Just, you know, and they're going to take native rangeland and a couple, I don't know how many acres the solar farm is going to be, but all the roofs just down in Billings that could have solar panels on them. You oh, know, yeah, why, sure. why not put solar panels on our roofs then, instead of taking native rain, open space, which is valuable and aesthetic and, you know, put solar panels on it and then ship, the, ship it to Billings. But boy, those solar panels too, you look at the, and the, yeah, they've gotten more efficient and but uh, the the uh, the payout even today, you're looking at a long term payout as far as putting those in and getting your money back as opposed to just buying it off the grid. Hmm. And so most people you don't have the luxury of of being able to do that. And then that's you know that's what's happening right now with by curtailing this oil and gas. Who are we really hurting? You're not going to hurt me, but the the lower middle income people are hurting a lot. You're going to see if, if people are commuting to work and they're cost of transportation doubles, it's it's painful. That, that comes out of the bottom line. You know, a lot of these stimulus checks are spent on filling the gas tank up. Yeah, absolutely. If you want to help a third world country, give them coal. Yeah. <laughs> so before we wrap this up, Tom, and let you go, I want wonder if there's any any last bits, uh, particularly on land ownership and your and you know your history of owning land in Montana. If you have any anything else to throw in there as for, for our listener base on on owning land and uh, investing in land in Montana. Well, I think the people in Montana are still kind of shell shocked by the prices they're seeing. <laughs> yeah. But if you check around and I, if you look at what land is going for in other states, particularly agricultural land, uh, I know irrigated ground in Montana. It's still a bargain compared to the Midwest. It's 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 shocking what they are paying back there in Iowa and Minnesota and Wisconsin that sort of thing. So, you know, you what you are surprised today, but you'll think you'll look back in twenty years and say, "Boy, that was a heck of a deal I got back then." Right, right. How about if if I'm a potential ranch buyer or if I am a landowner in Montana and I'm curious about my mineral rights, where do I go? What should I do? Well, I think I said step one, I'd go to the call the Oil and Gas Commission, the uh, Montana Oil and Gas Conservation Commission here in Billings. They'll steer you in the right direction. Uh, you can well, I can talk to they can talk to you, Randy, and I'll, I know some guys here in town that, are, that do it for a living. Uh, I've done it for family and friends, done some evaluations, but I don't really want to get it. I don't. Uh, I'm getting too older, that sort of thing. But and, but I think uh, some people we can we can refer you guys to, and you can pass on that to these people because it, it's yeah. If you're going to spend twenty million dollars or thirty million dollars or five million dollars on a on a property, and you and you think if you're in an area where there is actually some kind of potential. It behooves you to spend. So, what if you spend three thousand bucks having a landman go out there and check the records and, and tell you exactly what you have? I think it's a, it's just it's part of your due diligence. Makes an awful lot, lot of good sense. So it sounds like Tom doesn't want to give out his personal information. He's not a retail uh, service <laughs> provider. Uh, he'll use us to screen anyone that we might. <laughs> well, we work referrals, so definitely. I mean, and that's what agents are here for. Is we're supposed to know the experts, not be the experts when it comes to property rights, mm-hmm. attorney, legalese, and mineral rights. So. Um, we're supposed to know enough to be competent and not get people in trouble, but <laughs> we can always make referrals. So a good place to start is you got to do your own due diligence. And if minerals are important to you or uh, the potential to buy a place that is not going to be developed, um, reach out, ask your agent, and make sure that they put you in touch with the landman like Tom. 
Well, it's funny. I'll, I'll let the last story is I had a, because uh, I do it for family and friends. You know, I've helped relatives or my wife's friends, whatever. And my wife's got a very good friend she grew up with, and she was a, was a model, very successful model in New York, and she married a photographer. And this guy is a fashion uh, photographer, so you can imagine, you know, he was, I mean, to the left of Bernie Sanders. And uh, <laughs> they got a home in, in New Mexico, and they've got a, a heat pump, and they've got a solar and blah, 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 and anti-oil and gas and that sort of thing, except the fact that uh, he called up and said, you know, I'm from my grandmother, and here are some properties in Washington County, Pennsylvania. I said, yeah, extreme southwest Pennsylvania. He said, well, if people are calling me want to buy this stuff, I called my mineral rights. I said, well, if you want to sell them, I'll buy them. Uh, but I said, as a friend, I'll tell you, don't do it. And uh, and it turns out he's right in the in the belly of the best part of this Marcellus shale, these mineral rights are. And they started throwing this money at him, and I, and I helped negotiate the price up substantially from what they were first offered. I mean, way substantially, into the thousands of dollars an acre. And then and he got a huge royalty we talked about. And this guy is, is, is about as green as there is. And then, then he said, well, really? Natural gas really isn't that bad. <laughs> <laughs> you see, he was green after all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When he saw that, we yeah, saw that. Yeah. Capitalism <laughs> green. Yeah. He saw the green, his, his whole attitude changed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Tom. This has been awesome. Yeah, thanks so much, we, Tom. We needed an oil and gas. We needed That's a right. mineral rights expert on here. That's right. Yep. No, it, was my, it was my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Okay, thanks, everybody. Uh, check us out on everywhere you get your podcast. Also, ranchinvestor.com, and you can listen on uh, Montana Land Source. Feedback. Well. Feedback. Send us some hate. If you, if you <laughs> just hated everything you just heard, let us have it. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. We'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us today on ranchinvestor.com podcast. We have a few things of note, uh, some housekeeping to take care of. Coulter DeVries is a licensed real estate broker in Montana and Wyoming. Andy Ron is a Montana certified general appraiser and accredited through the American Society of Farm Managers and Rural Appraisers. Denver Gilbert is a licensed real estate broker in four states. I say this because there are still 12 states that are non-disclosure, meaning we do not have the privilege of releasing private and confidential information from certain land markets. We have fiduciary and agency relationships that we take very seriously and would not seek to compromise these duties. In this podcast, we do not report information pertaining to specific clients or market participants unless it is public knowledge. Our reporting is not to be misconstrued as legal or financial advice, even though we may have opinions as to what one ought to do when it comes to ranch and land investing. Advice is only worth what you pay for it, and you are receiving this for free. So if you would like further information, please reach out to any of the hosts or guests on your own accord. We enjoy hearing your feedback, so please post any questions or comments to our Ranch Investor private group on Facebook. If you do not have Facebook, please send to comments at ranchinvestor.com. And thank you for listening.